This is a Federal News Network podcast. As long as the government has had competitive procurement, one rule has stood firm. If a bid comes in late, tough luck for that bidder. But the rule got harder to interpret when email replaced hand-delivered envelopes or faxes. What if a server crashed? What if a bid got stopped by a spam filter? Now a new case has muddied the rule further. Here with the details, Smith-Pactor-McWhorter procurement attorney Zach Prince. Zach, good to have you back. Good to be here, Tom. And let's begin with the rule itself. I mean, this goes back to the founding, probably back to the Competition and Contracting Act. But how has email affected the rule? Because email has had a lot of cases, hasn't it? It has. So the general rule is late is late. You get your proposal in even a second late, the agency is not going to consider it. There are exceptions to that, more so at the Court of Federal Claims than there are GAO. But the FAR has three exceptions stated. First, it's got an exception specifically for email. It is if you get an email into the government by 5 p.m. one business day before the proposals are due, then the agency could consider it if it determines that it's not going to unduly delay the procurement process. Uh, the second is the government control exception, is if you get it in on time to the government installation and it's in the agency's control, then the agency can consider it. And the third is if there just aren't any other proposals. It's the only thing the government received. Got it. So the 5 p.m. the day before, is that to take into account the problems that can happen with email systems? It is. And this can be really frustrating for any offerers because you get a proposal in and it's somewhat of a black box. You, know, you might not get a read receipt. You might get something saying that the government server has received it, but that doesn't tell you the agency has actually gotten your email. And then by the time the agency gets around to telling you they have not seen your proposal, you might be too late. Right. And the FAR clause, you mentioned that the agency may consider these things under those three exceptions, but that doesn't compel the agency to accept those bids, even if it is a day early by 5 p.m. and somehow they didn't get their eyes on it? That's right. The agency still has discretion to decide that they don't want to consider it. It's going to slow down the process too much. It likely depends on when the agency learns that this proposal was in their hands and they didn't see it. In other words, it could be in by the server's clock on time. But if nobody sees it for a month because it got overlooked and they've already read all the other evaluations, they could say, too bad. That's exactly right. I mean, that does sound like just pure bureaucracy, though, doesn't it? It is, but the government does have an interest in getting procurements completed and getting the things they need on time. Because in the old days, if something was delivered and it accidentally got into a trash bin, you know, the government would still have to have considered it because it was there physically on time. They used to be big envelopes. Sometimes it was a box of material, of physical paper. So email is exceptional then. And let's go into this current case, a company called eSimplicity. What happened in this particular case? So with eSimplicity, they got their proposal in on time by email, and they got a notification that the server had received it, but they didn't get a read receipt. So they followed up with the agency, and they asked, please confirm that you received their proposal. The agency, by the time they got around to responding, said, no, we haven't, and we're going to award to somebody else. You guys aren't in consideration. The agency did an investigation and determined that the proposal was rejected because of size limitations with email. The problem was that the solicitation didn't actually contain a size limitation. Right. Sometimes solicitations have page number limitations, but not a file size. Uh, I've seen some solicitations now that do have file size limitations, and they probably ought to, particularly in light of this decision. 
Right. And quick question, who is buying what from whom? Uh, the Navy was buying some sort of technical services in support of electromagnetic spectrum equipment, I assume. The government doesn't really elaborate on it in this decision. Got it. We're speaking with Zach Prince. He's a procurement attorney with Smith, Pactor, McWhorter. All right. So the company eSimplicity then appealed the agency's decision to which venue? Uh, they brought it to the Court of Federal Claims. And what happened? Uh, the court ultimately decided in favor of e-simplicity, and they did that on two grounds. The first was a pretty creative one. The court determined that the size limitation was an unstated evaluation criteria, which was a pretty interesting way to approach this, and I think it was a reasonable way to approach it. The solicitation easily could have said the size limitation is 35 megabytes. Everyone knows that an email server has some limitation, but what that is varies significantly by server. And because the agency didn't put this in here and they rejected the proposal automatically based on that criteria, the court found that was an unstated evaluation criteria and remanded to the agency on that basis. And then what happened? Well, the second basis for the court's decision was this assessment of the uh, second exception to the latest late rule. And that is whether the government control exception applies to email. And it's an interesting issue because the FAR has those two exceptions, one specifically for email and then one generically stated as you know, when something is at the government installation and in the government's control by the time of the proposal due date, then the government could consider it. The court has been split for quite a while on whether that also could apply to email. The plain language suggests that it can, and that's what the court based it on. You know, Playing devil's advocate, and this is the reason other judges haven't found that, the first exception is specifically for email, and it requires you to get it in by 5 p.m., one business day before. So it begs the question, if the second exception is also for email, why have a separate exception? But in any case, the court found <laughs> that it applied and remanded to the agency on that basis also. So we don't know what the agency has decided to do yet, though, do we? We don't. And this is an interesting trend at the court recently. They've been remanding issues to the agency to make decisions consistent with the court's reasoning rather than just telling the agency, you must do X. They're saying, this is what we've decided about the legal framework. Agency, issue a decision consistent with this, and then if there's a problem, it'll come back to the court. Interesting, because you know that word government control or government stewardship, whatever it might be, it might well be in the government's control, but it might not be in the hands of the contracting officer or the contracting official. So if it's stuck in a server, which could be actually off government premises, likely is, it's probably in the cloud somewhere. It's still in the government, but it's not in the contracting officer's hands. And I, I would presume the law means if it's in the building, so to speak, then it's up to the building or whatever to get it into the contracting officer's hands. They don't have people running around the halls with carts anymore delivering mail office by office. Maybe they do, but I haven't seen it in a long time. No, that's right. And it's an interesting issue because you know the government is millions of people. The yes. government sometimes tries to defend against poor conduct on that basis. But for the reality of the private sector, it is one entity. The government's in a tricky position because it needs to evaluate proposals within a timely fashion and get its business done. But the contractors can't be prejudiced as a result. So there are competing interests here. So the court can't then order the agency to go ahead and read that proposal. But you said that if they don't, then the plaintiff, the company, eSimplicity, could get them back into court for that next step? 
Yeah, it, it's hard to see here how the agency avoids considering this proposal because the first basis for the decision, that is the unstated evaluation criteria, that's pretty strong. Uh, for the agency to go and say, yeah, this was an unstated evaluation criteria as the court told us, but we're still not going to consider it, would take some guts, and I don't know how they defend it. Interesting. Well, watch the sizes of the files you send. In any case, I guess it's not a bad idea. You ever notice sometimes you send a PDF and it's five megabytes, and sometimes you send a PDF and it's 672 kilobytes, and I've never been able to figure out why a picture can be big or small. It seems like the server makes that decision for you. I don't know, but that's something to keep in mind. Zach Prince is a procurement attorney with Smith Pactor McWhorter. As always, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. No radio at home. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did. You know, in retrospect, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. 
I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, 
is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, 
and you're going to get in there quickly <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Splash, splash, splash Apply a little splash When your windshield's getting dirty Just apply a little splash When your windshield's full of grime Bugs, dirt, and snow Just use a little splash And be safe on the road Splash, splash, splash Apply a little splash When your windshield's getting dirty Just apply a little splash See safely on the road When you apply a little splash